This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. How's it going, Matt? Good. How are you, Hal? Nice to meet you. Doing well. Same to you. Hold on just a second. Howdy. Hey, how you doing, David? Good. How are you, Matt? Good. Hal, how are you? Hey. Nice to be talking with you. You're enjoying the beer this evening, huh? Yeah, and I've got a second one lined up, too. Oh, damn. What are those? Pacifico. Oh, okay. I had a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a friend that was staying here last night, and he, like you, had uh, had beer with a yellow label. It looked like a lot like that, but it was uh, wine, wine and kugels. Oh, the summer shandies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it tastes like Ajax. Yeah, it's got like a lot of lemon and stuff in it. <laughs> That makes you feel even better. Clean <laughs> <inside>. <laughs> I'm being good. I'm enjoying a cup of hot tea. Um, Jeez, who are you? Ginger, ginger hot tea. Yeah, I'm trying that to. That doesn't back. even have I'm, caffeine in it, right? I don't. I hope not, because my just guru tea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. It's it's um, mellow you out tea. Yeah. <laughs> I can feel the heart. I can't see myself on there. I don't know if you can see me or not. No, we can't. All right. Let me see if I can enable the video. Should be in the. There, there you are. Enable. What'd you guys do today? I planted a few, replanted some shit in my garden, and I sat here and worked on this book, which I've been doing for two years. <laughs> you did some of your plants die? They just didn't germinate, even though it, it was a good spring for it. Yeah, um, I think it was bad seeds. I don't know. You never know. You know, we're so far up in the air and so far north. Like, yeah, you know, out here in Miles City, you live in Missoula. I live in Miles City. Out here at the gardening. I live near Great Falls. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. It's a, but I bet it's similar. It, like, similar yeah. difference. I used to live in Bozeman, yeah. and, the, and the growing season is so much longer here. I'll bet. Uh, like, I think uh, Sydney is the place in Montana where, it get, where you can grow almost anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's part of the garden belt, too. Um, I bet Thompson Falls is that way, too. Probably so. And the bitter compared to the here, the bitter root is like fucking California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yup. But I used to plant my radishes on April first. I don't have a garden anymore. Now I have llamas instead. But gotcha. <laughs> you used to plant a garden in Miles City on April first, radishes? Well, radishes and snow peas and carrots and potatoes, you know. And then yeah. I would, and then I would plant like peppers and and tomatoes and eggplant, you know, 
stuff that needs more heat, I would plant in mid-May. Gotcha. Yeah, we're Mother's Day is the earliest Memorial Day usually. What's your book about? It's public lands. Oh. Um, and uh I took on a big thing and it's been uh I've I've got another I've got to deliver a lot of it in September. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm 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 doing a deferred gratification kind of life at the moment. A what? Deferred gratification. Oh, like you're deferring gratification yeah. these days. Yep. Okay. I'm just getting, I'm, wor- I'm working on this and do, I do my podcast and I, I do this and that's about, really, that's about it. Yeah. That's like how my life is in general. Long stretches of nothing worth living for punctuated by short periods where I'm kind of enjoying myself. Right. Do you even notice it when you're enjoying yourself? <laughs> it comes. A, it's a jarring. It's a jarring shock to the system. Oh, it's so relatable. <laughs> How about you, David? Just work. We got some friends in town visiting from Virginia this week. They came out here for a, a concert at Red Rocks. So, who's playing? Uh, uh it's called the Lizard King or something. It's some like jam band oh acid acid grass rock fusion kind of a thing yeah with some shrooms sprinkled on top (laughs) (laughs) do you you guys like do you guys like that kind of music no not really i guess it would depend on uh if i had ever heard that before but like wide (laughs) i'm imagining like a widespread panic um no, more like kind of like a modern version of Grateful Dead or like Government Mule, Levis, like that, those kinds of bands. Okay. Okay. Which are, I think is being not too, well, yeah, they're not as jazzy. Those bands aren't as jazzy as like a widespread panic or a fish. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Yeah, yeah. Not as, um. yeah, not in that like almost like ska-ish type of world. Yeah. Where they go on and on and on and on and on with like like some instrumental. Too many crowd exactly. around is like grilly digging it, and you're going like, "Holy shit! When is this going to be over?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, too I'm many so notes. That's the problem with a lot of music, in my opinion. It has too many notes in it. <laughs> I I listen to a lot of music, but yeah, I just I've. It seems like yeah, there's just no correlation between ver ver. Veros, ver, uh, virtual uh, virtuosity and how much I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the heart and the soul, you know. Sure. What'd you do? Uh, so you got these guests. You're cooking, cooking for them and stuff. My wife is. Yeah, it's her oh. friends from from back home. So you're like, they're your friends. You deal with them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were coming tomorrow. Where are you, David? Denver. Gotcha. Yeah. I just moved out here last October. I was in Virginia before that. We're about in Virginia. Originally from the Northern Virginia, but we were living in Virginia beach. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. Went to school in Charlottesville. So I had literally never lived outside the state in my life. Um, So at the end of the COVID housing market, we kind of saw our opportunity to sell and make a move and we just went for it. I don't blame you. Yeah. 
Are you I got family. I've got family around Stanton. Uh, well, it's called Deerfield. It's like on okay. the border of West Virginia. Yep. That's uh, pretty good. If if you already live there, it's pretty good. It'd be hard to find a place now, you know? Yeah, definitely. We're going to ask you more about your book, but before we do that, Hal, uh, would you mind telling David and Mai's minuscule little following of misfit hunters uh about yourself and uh, your your history and what you do day to day yeah um so i have been uh i've been a contributing editor at field and stream for i don't know 15 20 years maybe I'm not sure how long, um, barely long time. And uh, I covered conservation for Field and Stream. I uh, had a column there called The Conservationist that was online when uh, we covered the 2010 oil spill and it started a column there because of that success of that. Uh, that was good. I did that for a really long time. Um, I've been writing for High Country News in the West for since 19, I think I published my first piece there in 1998. Um, I covered the game farming and chronic rise of chronic waste and disease um, for a bunch of different magazines. Um, so I've been in the environmental slash conservation slash hunting, fishing, shooting, uh, writing world for most of my what so-called career. Um, a third of my income's always almost always been forestry work, trails, contract, and subcontracting mostly. Um, pine cone harvest, uh, did a lot of thinning lots and lots and lots of tree planting, still do run to have a tree planting crew in the fall, um, working on BLM lands. Um, so, I mean, that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I kind of keep, I keep the forestry stuff going and the writing going, um, uh, have for a long time, raised my kids here, um, sort of North central Montana and, uh, I came from Alabama uh, as a tree planter in 1989 um, to the west and got a job managing a ranch in the Bitterroot Valley. That was in 1989, and I, I've been in Montana mostly all ever since then. Does that make sense? Plus, you're a podcaster. And, and I host the uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast and Blast. Um, and that's been – that was a, a really – I don't know how you feel about yours, Matt, but uh, that was a totally organic, like literally born around the campfire idea um, oh. that has now 157 episodes. And I just interviewed a guy who uh, trains game rangers in Africa. So it's been, that's been, that's been a cool ride. Really? Yeah. Really I started, cool. li I started listening to that a little bit today. What, what does what a, what does the game rangers do? They look for poachers and pick up snares and oh. um, uh, try to maintain some of the the thin green line, I guess you'd call it, against the extinction of the African wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That was a that was a cool that was a really cool connection. Someday I'd like to go see some of that in Africa. I've never been really I've never been over there. Yeah, my wife keeps trying to get me to go. But, uh, she wants to go to Namibia. Yep. But 
I just, I've never been good at, at vacations where I just look at stuff. I, I, I think it's a limitation, um, on my part. It, it belies a lack of curiosity, you know, it, like I'm kind of an angler tour, uh, angler tourist. I want to go somewhere where I can fish. Yep. I don't blame you. Um, but you know, a lot of that has to do with just still being kind of mid career. Like if I was always on vacation, shit, I'd go everywhere and, and look at stuff half the year and, and hunt and fish the other half, you know, but I just, there's always, I don't think I've ever been good at a vacation. I, I can't think of, I can't really think of one. In any, of any type. Of any type. I mean, my, my hunting, I usually didn't. You mean that you've went on or that you've enjoyed? What's that? Do you mean that you've gone on or that you've enjoyed? I I, we don't really do them. I I don't. Okay. I mean, it's not, I mean, like I travel for work a lot. Like last winter I was doing the Southern National Forest in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and North Florida. Um, I mean, it was a lot of fun mm-hmm. going to vacation. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, my wife, luckily, she likes a lot of the same places I do. So we go to the Bahamas a lot and spearfish there and snorkel and cool. I'd like to see that. Um, and then wait, you want to see my wife spearfishing? Is that, no, just is like that what you're saying, <laughs> Hal? <laughs> Why? Because she's wearing a bikini. <laughs> um, Oh, a few years ago, we went on this vacation to D.C. for five days, and it was grueling. My wife has limitless stamina for museums. Like, she could be in there from the, when it opens at a.m. 8 a.m. till when it closes at 6 p.m., be at the Natural History Museum, the Holocaust Museum, what have you. Um, but so I would just daily go in and be like okay i'm going to i'm going to keep up but within 4 hours i'd be just like so exhausted from you know walking around looking at stuff so i just go sit in a coffee shop and work and then every night after she got done she really likes ethiopian food and <laughs> um and thai food I just, and I don't, I like stuff where you need a fork and a knife, you know? So we just be like eating baby poop every freaking night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a joke to be made about Ethiopian food because when I was a kid, they didn't, they, it, it was alleged that they didn't have any food. And I know that wasn't true, you know, but yeah, I heard some very awful jokes about right Ethiopians when I was a kid about the yeah, other, their food situation. What do they eat? What oh, do they eat an Ethiopian restaurant. Well, they it's like curry type stuff, and they mop it up with a piece of bread. You know what that bread's it's called, David? Spongy bread. Um, yeah, starts with an N, doesn't it? Nan? Is it Nan? Nan. Nan. No, non is non. Non is a Middle East like a uh, kebab, like oh. Middle Eastern bread. Um, okay, I can't. Remember. I know what it is. I lived in DC for like two years. And Ethiopian and Thai is like the best food around there, and Vietnamese. 
in the DC and DC area. Gotcha. But I, I didn't do the Ethiopian as much. I like spicy food, so I did a lot of Thai and Laotian food. If you were a vacant, I would go to Ethiopia. I've always wanted to see the Ethiopian Highlands. Oh, is that where the, there's this crazy sheep that lives there, right? I don't know. I just I grew up on um that uh the what was his name the hunter in Africa that was um I and I'm not sure how you pronounce it um Constantine John Philip Ionides or Ionides Oh, I don't know. He, of him. he was a rarities hunter there and he hunted Ethiopia in like eight, 1900. Okay. Um and it just always made me want to go there. Um uh, yeah. Oh, it it looks I mean gorgeous in like videos and footage I've seen, you know, over over the years. Yeah, I could totally see um liking the scenery over there for sure so i was talking to david stalling the other night on the podcast you know him i do know him well it had been a long time since i've seen him but yeah he was he was telling me about this article that a friend of his wrote i think it was for outdoor life and it was about how the evidence on what black bear baiting does to, to like in terms of bear habitat use and, and, and bear habituation. And it painted a kind of a dismal view of it. And he said that he was telling me that, um, they at the last minute decided not to run the article a number of years ago. So, yeah, I guess that's a question I'm curious about. Like how often do you think stuff gets canned that's relevant in out in with the rod and gun magazines just because of fear of backlash? Um, I can only speak from my experience. Um, and it hasn't, I can't think of a time when that's happened, but I stuck to more of a journalistic approach, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, uh, during the chronic, the early chronic wasting disease years, I mean, that was super testy. That was tight stuff. The game, the debate over game farming, right? Oh, okay. And, um, that was, uh. I'm trying to remember if any of it ever got canned. I don't think so. I don't know. It did not. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have some experiences that way that I've written about, about energy, the impact of energy development. But um, I'm here to tell you that uh, at, at Field and Stream, we ran some hard-hitting stuff. Oh. And before me, Ted Carasodi did. And before that, uh, well, and during that, Bob Marshall was doing it. Um, so I, I think it depends on the publication mm-hmm. and also that topic. I, I I don't know. See, I don't really cover hunting like that. I just remember when you go up top the Bitterroots and you cross the divide, you know, and drop into Idaho. I was always told that the average age of the black bear plummets 
Oh, because of, yeah, dating. Yeah. 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 And if you go to Jerry Johnson Hot Spring, which we used to do a lot, and uh, there was one time I was a, a man who didn't speak English in beautiful woolen clothes up in a tree. And I had never seen anybody up in a tree there at the hot spring. And I tried to talk with him and there was a big bait pile there in the woods. Somebody had dropped him off in like a tree stand over a bait pile. Like somebody was guiding him. I guess I, I well, he didn't speak English. So I never really, well, got you were like near the hot springs on a little hike. Yeah, I was okay. I was going back. Uh, I can't. I'm trying to remember the other little hot spring they got in there. That's that's further up the creek. But anyway, it was it was a, something I'd never forgotten because I'd lived in Montana for all that time, and uh, the bear baiting thing was not some part of my experience. You know. Yeah. Yep. Um. Well, I have a few questions written down. Well, no, no. Here's what we want to do next. We want to ask more about the book. So. Uh, what? Yeah, is it a history of public lands? Threats to it, public lands? What um, is? It's it's a kind of a history and a travels own. Um, so I've got I've got a, a, a I did a bunch of traveling on different national forests around the country, and I'm kind of profiling different places around the country that are public lands, you know. And then there is a a history that sort of got out of my. I had a hand for a while, um, and it's it's overly long, and I'm trying to cut it back down a little bit. But it 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 goes. It's the history of how we got what we got, you know. Oh, I see. See, I think that'd be a fascinating part of it. Well, I'm I'm hoping to um I'm hoping to be a little more. I want to be a master of compression. Uh huh. Yeah. What my goal is. Yeah. And that is not what I'm known for. Yep. <laughs> I just got ever, go ahead, David. I was gonna say, do you ever write around like think about writing about a place like that and then stop and think to yourself, like, man, I don't know if I want anybody else to find out about this place. Well, that's a great question. So um the answer to that is absolutely, but one of the ways I start out with the Shoshone National Forest is that um I'm never gonna tell you where this place was that we went. Because the beauty of having 640 million acres of public land is that you get to find it out on your own. Mm. And so it's pretty nonspecific. I had a guy call me up and say, no, we're not going to go into this place in Utah. Because no matter how well you try to just to disguise where it is, uh, it'll still be in your book and people are still going to want to find it. And I thought, I thought that was a good, I thought that was cool. I, there was no no uh, ill feelings over that whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I'm still a, a still a friend of mine and a touchstone for me. You know, there was uh, a guy on my graduate. That's true. Sorry, there was a guy on my graduate committee that used to say, like he'd be, um, quoting a letter between two people that somebody writes to another person. He says would say, "I'm sorry to have written you such a long letter." Because I didn't have time to write you a short one. That's it. <laughs> You've heard that before? Absolutely. I live yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just got a, a, a paper rejected from a, the third journal. I'm revising it for the fourth journal. And I had to cut. It's a, It was a 7,000 word article. And I had to cut it down to 5,000. 
And I swear it's clear. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually better. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, that means that, you know, a large part of my life has been sitting in this place for I've been in this office for 19 years. Large part of my life was, was spent on, left on the cutting room floor, you know, and that that's hard. That's a little bit hard, but in order to uh, promising more than I can deliver, I have a bad habit. It's true. But I have to promise more than I can deliver in order to deliver just what I do. Oh, oh, that sounds like I bet a contractor came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> a, build, a building, a building contractor. Yeah, I hear you, man. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah, I do have a few questions written down. Um, it is a it is a hunting podcast, and it it's one that's pretty narrowly focused on a small set of what we take to be huge problems facing the future of publicly accessible non-pay hunting. I think it's abundantly clear to anybody that listens to this podcast for very long at all. What I think that, that I think that there are enormous threats and and what the, what I think they are, I was wondering where where what's your temperature check on on this pastime that you and I and David all enjoy on hunting and, and public hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like I, I every I'm I'm always qualifying my concern because I really don't have I don't in, I don't have any interest in pay hunting at all so i'm if you know if if that went away it wouldn't affect me or the people i care about that much. i would i guess i'd feel bad for people that pay hunted that they couldn't right. do that anymore but it's just not my it's outside of my realm of concern right well i'm not sure how you'd ever uh halt the process of people pay hunting i mean it's like in in a in a democratic republic but you could kind of get rid of public hunting. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, they're not, I think there'll always be like grand wealthy dukes or whatever, like there were back in old England, galloping around spearing hogs or hunting stags mm. or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know, Matt. I think what I would say is that um, we have carried this, this, this lifestyle. For me, it's not a sport and never has been. I mean, I, I kind of consider like dove hunting. It's kind of a sport, but big game hunting and all is not a sport to me at all. It's it's a, a life a life pursuit. You know, it's I call it say it's my north star or whatever. Uh, it gets overused now, but I've been using it a long time. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely that we would still have it, and um. It, it's based on things that ha were done, incredibly difficult and inconvenient choices that were made during the time that when we destroyed our wildlife resources from 1865 in particular on through, say, 1920. And 1909, say, when we passed the Lacey Act, you know, which, which slowed down commercial hunting and fishing. And um, I think that was 09, might have been 04, but... John F. Lacey is one of my heroes, you know, the congressman from Iowa. He's a battle-hardened Civil War guy. And he he seemed to have done about as much to give you and I what we do now 
as any single person in 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 the world. Um, so I think it 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 was a highly unlikely that we would still be hunting elk and deer in the United States of America with 340 million people or whatever we got now. And so the question is, if we see that as a positive, which I do, is how do we carry it now? How do we shoulder this? And it's not a burden. How do we shoulder this responsibility that was kind of dropped, you know, like, like I, I've been hunting, I'm 58 years old. And I've been hunting since I was nine. And pretty much everything that I've ever shot and eaten was a result of conservation practices put in by people in the 1900s. Um, the restoration of whitetails to Alabama in 19, when I've killed my first one in 1978. Um, they had only been restored for three or four years, you know. There were no turkeys when I left Alabama in 1989 on our property whatsoever. And now it's like a turkey hunting destination. Um, now that's running neck and neck with the expansion of Huntsville, Alabama, which is now the largest city in Alabama. Um, and so a lot of these things are running neck and neck. What do you mean they're running neck and neck? They're running neck and neck with the with the population in the United States, which is more than doubled. Oh, now. okay, I see. I mean, it's you know you don't have a lot of pot hunting in India, um, or China, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean you you've got to make choices about what you want in in this world, and I I'm and in, in both individual and societal level, right? Well, mm -hmm. what, what I, I mean, I wrote this piece at Field and Stream. I, I mean, I wrote variations of the same damn piece like 20 times. And it was, what do you believe in? Asking the audience, you know, do you really believe in, in categorical exclusions to the to the winter range exempt uh, uh, protections on public land to get natural gas that you could get with directional drilling and not and not destroy that herd? These are questions you were asking rhetorically in a magazine article? Of course. Okay. I've been doing it for 20, 20 plus years, you know? Yeah. It's what do you value? What, what do you believe in? And, and, and if you believe in something, you make choices. As Randy Newberg always says, conservation is certainly not convenient. It's not convenient to have big elk herds in the Missouri breaks. Those landowners don't like it. They never have. When they reintroduced elk to Tennessee, who was against that? The Farm Bureau. They fought tooth and nail. It wasn't convenient. So is it is that what the you think the biggest threat is 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 conservation? I think it's it's the growing uh, population of the citizenry who is indifferent. Mm. to conservation and what it means in our lives. Uh, they're indifferent to the benefits that, that we've enjoyed growing up here where you turn on the tap and you get clean water. I mean, you've been in, lived in Mexico. I mean, I've been lived in Mexico, Mexico City. You don't have none of that. People didn't choose it. Yeah. They chose to do the easy thing. The easy thing is to let the, the, the factory pour the stuff in the creek. <laughs> Yeah, the other host, the, the other host of this podcast lives in Pennsylvania, very close to the Ohio River, and 
I just cannot imagine living next to a river that has that many fish in it. He talks about all the species of fish in there. Yeah. It's like so rich and you can't yeah. eat any, and you can't eat any of them. I would still eat them. You would? Yeah, I guess not. I'm not going to be gone by some kind of ecophobia. Oh, really? Wow. It's like if that kills me so be it. Oh, see that wouldn't even that wouldn't even dawn on me to just like throw caution to the wind, take a devil may care attitude and just fry some drum out of the Ohio River or whatever. Right. You know? <laughs> I just I join you. I join you. My best years crazy. are behind me. I'll join you. Right on. And the fact that you can't eat a drum out of the Ohio River is a travesty. Nobody, oh, in, the, nobody in their right mind should accept that fact. That's Have you ever read um, that book? Um, I can't remember the author now, but it was The Frontiersman. No. All, all about the, the war for the Ohio. I wonder if it'd be... No, I haven't. I haven't. No, that was the richest country in the world. Like farm ground wise. Cane breaks, fishing game. Audubon did a hunt there toward the, when he was like in his 40s where they, they call it wild pecans. I don't know what that was really. The all the native tribes met there and they killed black bear for the hat for the for the grease. Oh. And they were all grazing on these wild pecans and they would shoot like, I don't know, like pound after pound of wildfowl and stuff off the Canal River, the Ohio, the Elk River, where West Virginia and Ohio meet. Um, when the there was some battle there where the American troops burned like hundreds and thousands of pounds of bear grease mm-hmm. that the natives had taken from that area. And now that's some of the most polluted country in the United States. I mean, I mean, I don't know if I don't I don't know if there's a weird tale to be told there, like some kind of, you heard of the Mothman, right? At Point Pleasant. <laughs> no. What's that? <laughs> the Mothman is this prophecy that, that he shows up. Mount Pleasant Mount Pleasant, Michigan? Yeah, no, it's um it's Ohio. Oh. Point Pleasant. Point Pleasant. Okay. Yeah. And it's the Mothman prophecy. It's some, you know, like environmental doom or whatever. Oh wait! Tell me about this. Yeah, you uh, drill down a little bit. Help me understand this. You'll have to look it up, but it's um that he appeared. There's a bridge collapse, and the Mothman was supposed to be responsible for it. And it's supposed to date back, perhaps, to like the death of Cornstalk, um, one of the the native leaders there. And it was like a curse place there because like the people wrecked it so bad, like you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's and that doesn't mean it has to stay wrecked. They're yeah, yeah. I wonder what it would take to clean up the whole Ohio River. It would take the will of the people. Yeah. Yeah. People would have to say, well, it's unacceptable not to be able to eat the drum out of here because someday I may be hungry and my kids want to play in the river. And yeah. it's just not cool that somebody's dumping their whatever in it. And depriving me and my children and my legacy, my descendants of that drum and that free fish and that freedom to drink that water. That's what it would take. Yeah. And a lot of money. Well, I think if you stop 
pouring the shit in there in the first place, you might say it would be cheaper to clean it up. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like saving money, I've, right? I suspect the environmental standards are quite a bit higher there than they were back in the day. Um, I think my, they've been slipping. Yeah. yeah, like my my friend Jim Durkin that hosts these episodes on here. He he said his dad remembers his dad remembers his dad just at work, like taking truckloads of affluent of some kind and just driving them down there and right dumping them in, you know. I'd like to think that that's not happening anymore. I would like to think that's not happening anymore. I mean, it, it took Will, though. Oh, David, you ask a question. I want to add, I want to, I want to see what's in there that's so, so, uh, nasty. Sure. Yeah. No, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. How with this, you know, you talk about like what would it take to clean up the Ohio River and it's the will of the people and how, you know, the biggest struggle with hunting is conservation because of it sounds like almost like a lack of will of the people. What role do you think the hunting and or, or just in general, the industry, commercial interests, um, influencers, people who have a voice play in the that lack of message? Because we live in such a connected society with social media, I would think that it should be so easy for someone like yourself who's, you know, like has BHA's platform at the disposal to put this stuff out there. And we should all say, hell yeah, like the Ohio River, I should be able to go fish the Ohio River. Like, Why isn't that happening? Well, I put it out there twice a month. Um, and I put it out there for 20 years. But um, why has it not resonated with a majority or a, a, a staggering majority of people? Or even just the hunting community, because I mean, the hunting community has shown that we like. I mean, we we can move the needle in some respects. You know, I think Pebble Mine and like other similar such projects are like examples of such. And if you follow, you know, any big hunting social media presences, they always espouse or yeah, they're always talking about, um, you know, how the like the quote unquote proof that hunting is valuable for conservation for this and for that. But we seem to be falling short in so many areas, in my opinion. Like what's are are we just kind of like fluffing here with what we say we're accomplishing or and, and we're just holding on to what we have and what the people before us like really fought for? Or are we really moving the needle forward in terms of progress for protecting habitat? environmental standards publicly public like public access and and all of these things are so integral to the north american model of conservation well that's a good question um i would say that the hunt hunting community shares a a crossover or it is the larger community right it of, of the united states of america the population the citizenry of the u.s includes the hunters Mm-hmm. And I would say a percentage of those hunters are just as indifferent to how we got what we have as your average person turning on the cold water in their house and, and drinking a big glass of tap water. Um, now, the hunters have, 
it, it seems to the, though that to whom much is given, much should be expected. And so I am often disappointed that the hunting community doesn't do more. Uh, but I'm grateful for what we've done. Um, there's a lot of things where it's falling short right now. And, and I, I don't really, so here's the thing. So the, the Supreme court just trimmed the clean water act again. And, um, I'm a dissenting voice in all of this. I understand what the original clean water act said, right? And it didn't cover isolated wetlands and, and unconnected spring creeks and stuff that weren't connected with a significant nexus to a, to a major river or navigable river. So the Supreme Court has actually ruled on what the Clean Water Act said back in the day, 1972. So what if you value waterfowl and clean water and fisheries and fishing in the United States, we are going to have to have a new Clean Water Act. It's going to have to be written as a bill and passed as a law, and it's going to have to reflect something that was in the waters of the U.S. rule. So my question as a litmus test is whether the American hunting and fishing community is going to get behind something like that and be perhaps the first to suggest what that's going to be. So do you think like you're I, capable of it? I do. Because it from the beginning, the people to whom these destructions were most obvious were the people who were afield fishing and hunting. Um, I think about Ray Scott at starting Bass Angler Sportsman Society right in the 60s before the Clean Water Act. Ray Scott, using what he called bubble power, brought more litigation against polluters on the Tennessee River system than anybody, I think, that any other person ever has. Um, now, have we moved into a political polarization where that kind of thing is impossible? I don't know. You know why? Because it took the federal government to pass the Clean Water Act, and we have been meticulously taught for most of my adult life that the federal government is somehow this ogre that has to be kept at bay. And that's going to make it very difficult to do things like wide-scale river protections because they cross state lines. And isolated wetlands are integral to the health of aquifers and waterfowl and fisheries and clean water. And if you can't protect them, I haven't seen the state stepping up to do that. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like, what do, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to demand? What are our responsibilities? Um, oh man. Yeah. There's just some things that are just some challenges. that are just so huge. I can't imagine doing much be beyond voting, you know, well, you're a biologist. I think if, if you wrote a version of the WOTUS rule as a bill and asked your legislator to take it to the Montana legislature, saying that like it we've got to we've got the example of the big hole right now. It ain't working. Right. Well, 
What's the WOTUS rule? Waters of the U.S., which protected oh. tributaries and isolated wetlands that had a significant nexus to a navigable body of water. Okay. And that doesn't exist anymore? Well, it was a rule that was implemented by the EPA. And so, as a rule, it kind of imposed on people's private property rights. And you, honestly, you can't have an agency that's full of unelected people imposing rules on people if they object to them, <laughs> right? Right. You can yeah. do that with laws that you pass through Congress or through a legislature. You can do that then because the people have to ha to say that they support this. Yeah. So WOTUS was, was as beautiful as it was, and it worked very well. It was doomed from the beginning. And that, that's not to say that it, it wasn't awesome that you couldn't fill in the swamps and, and flood your neighbor and, and pour the cow turds down the river on, and deprive your neighbor of his right to swim in his creek or whatever. It was great, but it yeah. wasn't a law. Yeah. It, it was doomed. Yeah. So now where do we go? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I th I guess I think of it almost more as not only now where do we go, but who's going to take us there? You. <laughs> yeah, but at the end of the day, I mean, with the way that like you know that politics are, like yeah, yes, it requires like the groundswell support of individuals, but so somebody has to be at the helm, right? And we have. Uh, a hunting industry with, I think the quote I heard recently was like $24 billion and nonprofits with, I don't even know how much money at their disposal. Like, and with, I guess when this brings it back to hunt quietly too, with what we see as kind of like almost a corruption of the priorities in that industry. Um, I, like, I wonder if, if they're really going to, like, capable of taking us there. I don't know if that, what the answer to that is, but I do know that what, where it's going to start is people who really, really love duck hunting or turkey hunting. And so the one thing with, with Hunt Quietly, I, lo I love what y'all do, and I've been following you pretty closely. Um, but I don't feel the same level of intensity or passion about the corruption when I know that people are participating in these sports and buying this gear with the expectation that there's going to be turkeys in a place to hunt them. And those turkeys in that place to hunt them is going to have cerulean warblers in it and rough grouse and frosted salamanders or whatever, right? So what I'm seeing still is that the hunting industry, so so called, is still has the one of the greatest cap capacities for being the ground swell, and it's got to come back, David. It's got to come. It's got to come. It's not going back anywhere. We're going forward to something. Mm -hmm. We're driving the truck forward. Mm -hmm. So that the new conservation, the new environmental movement, the new hunting fish and conservationists it's going to have to come from the bottom up now 
because the days where the federal government came in and saved us is rapidly going away. And I can tell mm -hmm. you, they did that many times. Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Toxic, Toxic Substances Control Act. You look at the you look at the, the uh, legislation passed in the 1970s, and you can look exactly at where we're at right now and see how we benefited. But, so you think that the government is less apt to take measures now than they were? I mean, I have a, a giant wind farm, um, a handful of miles north of where I live, and whether you think that's a good move or not, it was put there at great expense ostensibly as an environmental measure. Well, I grew up in Alabama with the TVA, right? And they they flooded and they paved over and they did all kind of terrible things. So the government is the government is a, a double-edged sword always. Having government and a government that has power to do things, it's always going to be problematic. But I can promise you that if you didn't have the government, you wouldn't have pronghorn hunting right i was i was just trying to i was just trying to drill down on this on your statement that if we're going to affect any kind of environmental change um restoration what have you that it's not going to come from the government this time that's going to yeah, come I, it, it is I, going I, to come from the government but only if we the people who are represented by the government are and are the government only if we demand it. I think the big difference too is between like your wind farm example is that in the wind farm situation, there's a like commercial dynamic at play that then like that does benefit from that in some, some way. Whereas when it comes to protecting hunting and fishing, it's, you know, it's really like hunting specifically, it's 5% of the population that like materially benefits in that way. People, now there's all these like externalities at play as well that like come from these benefits from protecting these places and protecting water for like everyone. And obviously, but from like a direct, like when you think of like, just like a more direct equation and like less of these removed benefits, you know, I don't think as many people buy into it. Whereas, and, and, and we don't have the same engine of demand for yeah, like, getting sense. those benefits done as like, the energy like with the like solar and wind industry is massive i mean i have friends who work in private equity investment banking solely dedicated to those types of things right but we we don't have that in the hunting industry right now we we have the starts of it i mean you have groups like churnin who are making a massive private equity investments in the hunting industries but we haven't graduated to that level i don't think of where not only are they just making money off of that industry now but now realizing they need to go to like another level to protect it and and make and like make a significant cash investment in terms of lobbying information campaigns or whatever it is to then put us over that hump we're just we're not there and i guess the the question that i'm kind of like dancing around here that i didn't realize i was dancing around is like you know will they really get there or will the alternative options people have for hunting with protecting large swaths of private lands and outfitters and whatnot kind of tip this like will they keep the scales balanced in a way to where maybe the public stuff isn't seen as much of an issue because private hunting becomes such a large piece of the pie that they don't see it as a threat to their revenue um i think that's kind of like a, like a base level part of like the concern that we have 
Yeah, and there's a lot there. I mean, we're talking about, it seems like we're told, talking about multiple things now. Like, are, are we talking, I mean, on one hand, we're talking about how do we get the hunting industry to fund conservation, right? Mm-hmm. David Stalling the other night says that um, hunters have fund about 5% of conservation, he believes. And and this is a guy that's worked for Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Trout Unlimited. Um, who else? Oh, Wilderness, Montana Wilderness Foundation. Um, and he, he was making the point that, like, all this public land, I mean, that's funded through, like, the management of those lands are public, pub, are funded through the taxpayer. So, um, but... Then, so there, there's that question of, you know, what is the hunting industry doing as, as much as they should be for conservation? And they sur- sure s- s- claim that they are, you know, they, they, uh, they tout their conf, I think all hunting companies tout their conservation bona fides pretty vociferously in a, on a regular basis. It's just not, they're just not the issues that the hunt quietly group is, is focused on. We're more focused. We're more, I mean, they're the, they're the tantamount. I mean, conservation is tantamount without that. That's not, there's no sense quibbling about things lower down in the hierarchy, right? Like there's no, if there's no sustainable game populations, there's no sense in talking about access. Right. Or the price of hunting. Um, And then there's even higher layers, like it without a functioning society, without all the atrocities that um, define human civilizations every you know uh, tyranny and slavery and and sexual mutilation etc there's no then there's there's no that 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 takes precedence over conservation you know so there's this hierarchy and i think of hunt quietly as being like lower in the hierarchy or higher maybe maybe we should invert the pyramid we're higher and like once the base we're like once the the base requirements for decent hunting are fulfilled. Those being a functioning society, sustainable wildlife populations, sufficient habitat. Then we need to battle the market forces that uh, are trying to monetize it. Um, and I, that's what I see is happening now. It's like, we tried it once. We tried to have market forces regulate wildlife. That's what got us into the situation in the in the early 1900s and the late 1900s was letting market forces, like a neoliberal approach, dictate what happened to wildlife populations, and it didn't work. Modification. What's that? Commodification, commodification, yeah, and yeah. I think we're, and I think in a large, to a large extent, we're we're right back there, except it's not shooting thousands of ducks out of a layout boat, 
it's using dead and dying animals as entertainment and advertising instruments. Um, but I, I it, it, it's, it's like, to me, it's, it's, it's a, it's a different mechanism, but it gets us into the same place. Well, I think, okay. So what I would say about that with it, that's a value judgment there, which is based upon having the animals in the first place to then display. So we've succeeded in having the animals, which was is a highly unlikely state of affairs, given the way the world is right now with 8 billion people and, you know, bush meat trade in Namibia or whatever. And uh, even, even that is, you know, even saying we've succeeded in having the, the animals, you get, there's there's some there's some footnotes there, right? <laughs> uh, what would one be? Oh, just the astounding number of species that have gone extinct or are on the brink of extinction. No doubt, yeah. no doubt. I mean, you will not find any argument here uh, with with me about the collapse of biodiversity, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry. Carry on. Well, the, the animals that we have chosen to restore and shoot and then take pictures of are doing pretty well. Whitetails, turkeys, um, you know, elk. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and in 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 as much as that the in as much as that is true, then we have to worry about whether access to those animals is at all equitable and if people are harvesting them for legitimate means and i guess and that's where our group comes in in my view would you agree with that david or yeah yeah and i would add to that too that it's not just that like whether they're successful but whether they're like you said successful in a manner that um also like provides opportunity to people who are funding that conservation at least in the state like wildlife department level because i mean when i think i like you know obviously from like a perspective of turkeys for example we're in a way better place than we were 50 60 years ago but there's still a like a decent list of states that are reducing tag numbers on turkeys and there certainly aren't any states states that are increasing them right so i wonder if we aren't with the way hunting is headed now, we aren't, maybe we're not in a bad place now, but if we aren't headed in the wrong direction in some respects, as it pertains to protecting the wildlife that, that we care about so much. I think that there's this interplay between, um, the status of wildlife in our, in, and in our access to them, like, I'm a bit of a secular humanist. I think that what it's not like the natural world in my view has intrinsic value. I think it has its value is derived from um, what it can give us. And the the impetus for protecting the natural world in my view is, stems from our own intrinsic interests. Uh, so, um, and, and when this is something I was struggling with David or with, uh, um, uh, 
with Stalling the other night. What's his first name? Dave. Dave Stalling. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So he was talking about um he he's opposed to like bear hunting of any kind really like he maybe that's he's very uncomfortable with bear hunting he's very uncomfortable with wolf hunting and and i where we started to get confused with each other's stances was just right around this issue of do wolves and bears have um value in and of themselves or does their value derive from human interests so i i feel like the, the being that i think that the value of wildlife derives from human interest it's like for our, for our own sake that i think we should be preserving them that leads me it's like the more people that have that want to hunt, um, that means the more people that want to hunt, the more people there should be that that that, that opportunity should be equitably shared. But I mean, one of your great quotes was that if everybody wanted hunted to the point of uh, where where the industry wants us to or whatever, you'd have to draw a tag to kill a gray squirrel. Right. You just yep. ain't enough bears to go around. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you know, for us yeah, all to have and, a have a bear. Ergo, my ergo, my <laughs> my opposition to hunter recruitment. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess what we've been doing the last fifteen minutes, as near as I can tell, is trying to figure out where where in the hierarchy hunt quietly's concerns fall. It's a luxury to have the concerns we have. Because there are animals let, to hunt. Let me tell you this. You you can visualize, you can think of however you want to think about human uh secular humanism and the value of the environment until you did until you ain't got it. And then all your endeavors and your your belief in whatever ain't gonna mean a rat's ass to anybody. Right. But it's not but, it, but yeah, but you're preaching to the choir there. It's like I'm it's not like I'm pro environmental degradation. Like I, I well, I, I mean, I've, I've devoted my I've devoted my life to trying to counter environmental de- degradation. Right. I mean, I, I'm going to say the a thing that I repeat over and over, and I hope it uh, people ain't sick of it. But it's hunting and fishing are the interests on the principle of sustainably and well managed landscapes and waters. Oh, that's cool. I've never heard you say that. That's awesome. That's exactly okay. right. So we so- shave off the top. We shave the profits you off the it, you're, top. You're pulling the cream, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so when 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 Roger Mugley made the Tongue River go around, he did something that was absolutely irreplaceable, and he did it as an individual. And he took a lot of state money and pushed it and made this thing happen as Roger Mugley did it. It wouldn't have happened without Roger Mugley. Roger Mugley for 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 the audience is a uh, he he. Lives in the same town as me, Miles City, and he um, used to be the head of our water district. And he was very, very passionate about um, about the fish in 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 the Tongue River. Because um, when he was a kid, would they be irrigating in in land he owned, his family owned, 
and a lot of fish would end up in the in the irrigation canal and 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 so he built this so there's a dam 12 miles up the tongue from mile city and he built a fish ladder to allow fish to travel up to their historic range above the dam so sorry hal i just wanted to make that no that, no I, no i appreciate that i i i mean I mean, if we were all as motivated as Roger Mugley, I'm not even sure we'd be having this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And if we all hunted as quietly as David and I, I'm not sure we'd be having this conversation. <laughs> That's right. I, um, I just, I'm, I'm trying, I would like to pin you down here while I got you. Um, is why is it mattered to you? that some people hunt loudly or as Instagram influencers or whatever. What is that? What, what is the beef there? It leads. I, I'll tell you, I, I just don't feel it. Like oh. I, I'm interested in this for you. I, I, I don't pay any attention to it. Well, the, okay. So whether, let, let me try this way. I could say it a million ways, but the hunting industry feels it. There are shows now um, they've been around for a while. One of them is called the Hunting Land Man. One of them is called Whitetail Properties, where they show the audience attractive hunting content. And at the end of the show, they then try to sell the property where they're hunting. Gotcha. Okay? So these are working landscapes that maybe you would at one point were open to door banging or um we're enrolled in a program like block management that allows everybody to hunt and so the the, the hunting industry understands that and the sitka is part of this uh um real tree is part of this mossy oak is part of this. they all understand that hunting loudly creates a market for the thing that's hardest to get which it which is access to game so that's why like do you know about land trust absolutely Here, yeah so i think of the i i don't like them at all and what they're doing at all um and i but i think it's a brilliant move on their part they are the beneficiary of millions of dollars of advertising and hunting entertainment so that's in a nutshell is that complete david or yeah yeah and i would add to that that in i think like at a more like individual level that this lens through which we view hunting outside of the season by watching all these tv shows and consuming all this content i think promotes selfish behavior more than it does selfless behavior if you watch the majority of these hunting shows you know, I mean, they, they like essentially constitute like a, a vlog, right? It's about an individual's experience in a place and their success and celebrating that for them. But as I mean, coming, like I can say spe like specifically my experience when I was like learning to hunt in Virginia, I start, I started later in life, like 24 years old or so I'm 30 now, um, watching that stuff made me feel like I was doing something wrong in some respects when I wasn't having that same level of respect and motivated me to do things for myself to improve my hunting. And in Virginia, which is a not 
like the most public land friendly state. Um, you know, the, the result of that was that I went out and started like shopping for leases. I was like, I was ready. I was ready to spend more money than I probably should at that age, leasing out a swamp from a deer club or or whatever it might've been. Um, Whereas, you know, if we really want to push the needle forward in the ways you're talking about this groundswell of, 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 you know, people demanding the Ohio river be clean, you know, that $3,000 a year I was ready to spend on a wood duck hole would have been much better spent in like a more direct, you know, conservation um, methodology. And I think that's what the majority of the hunting industry is promoting now is, is, is selfishness rather than selflessness in this resource that we all share and that we all own. Right. Well, you're you're touching on an incredible contradiction that Texas solved a long time ago by not really embracing the North American model, right? Um, The North American model requires that we, the people who own the fish and game in in the public trust, have access to that. But the, the nature of private property in the United States of America denies that that reality. So there's an inherent contradiction in the North American model, and I, and I there's an in the application of the model. Okay. Yeah, there's two rights at play, and, and we've decided the right to exclude supersedes the right to access fish and game. There's no doubt because private property is sacrosanct in this country in a way that um, I personally uh, want to see continued. Um, it's it's very difficult. Like I'm a private property advocate. Uh, and yet I own a quarter acre and it, it's very interesting when there's 165,000 acres east of me that has the same rules of access as I have to my quarter acre. Um, so we're, we're at a time of, if, if I were y'all, I would be much more concerned with the, the going belly up of smaller landowners who are as more likely to allow you access to the public trust of wildlife than I would be. And, and the consolidation of ranches in and farmland in the United States, which is re, resulting in these enormous holdings to which we will never have access. Yeah, I, I, we just, we're one little group that's focused on something different than, I mean, like, uh, what would we look like if that was what we decided to work on? Well, you would be doing stuff like um, you'd be going to our calf meetings out there in Miles City and talking up to producers of cattle who are being put out of business by the global beef monopoly, thereby being bought up by XYZ Global Consortium, who will never going to let you access to the wildlife in the last of your life. And that's just basic capitalism 101. It's almost like economics. It's almost like we're diving. We're trying to dive under one wave of economic activity, but there's a much bigger one behind it that's pushing it forward. That you're in the culvert and the water's coming in behind you. Yeah. Um, One of the things that y'all said on this that that I I I must say I object to um, is uh, I'm not comfortable with them doing this with this bear hunting or this kind of hunting, or I know you're not, you're not saying that Matt, but in, in, in this country, we don't care what people are comfortable with. 
Man, people do stuff that I'm uncomfortable with 24-7. They got lights outside my house they put up. I can't even watch TV at 2 o'clock in the morning because of damn lights. I agree, including I, I'm including saying you're uncomfortable with something somebody's doing. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I think exactly. that that's part of it, too. You know, I mean, I was like, I mean, I, these lights are just driving me nuts here. And people are going, well, there's grizzly bears. They walk around town. And I said, well, destroying your night vision forever is not going to help protect you from the one grizzly bear that comes through town every five years. I'm highly uncomfortable with the, the abrogation of the dark skies that I used to enjoy. And I might do a citizen's thing where I write a letter or whatever, you know, but really people don't care what I'm comfortable with. And I don't care what other people are uncomfortable with. The fact oh, that I, I don't like to cause people undue consternation. I like right. I, I I I do care about other people being comfortable. As if I so there's a little bit, you know. There's a, there's sure, we differ there. A difference I mean, there. Yeah. Like you wouldn't wear if you you don't you wouldn't you don't feel compelled to put deodorant on if you're going on a plane or something like that. Let them smell you. <laughs> Yeah, I've never really thought about that one. But, oh, um, or like wear a, like a big spiky helmet or something. I probably wouldn't do that. Or you know, spike knee pads or something. Even if they let you, yeah, be goosing people in the line and stuff and make them uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I, I'm I'm interested. One of the things I was most interested in when in your thing was was the questioning of R three given that it's a finite public resource that we're demanding more and more access to with a with a radically shrinking base of places that you can go and exercise this right yeah uh, or this this tag that you buy as you drive to mile city you can pass like herds of pronghorn giant mule deer bucks even some elk and stuff in the in the upper breaks and you can't touch any of them, even though you got the tag. Yeah. Because it's on private land. Yeah. And I don't know how we're ever going to reconcile that one. Well, Dave and I are taking a swipe at it. What is we're, it? Yeah. We we started a nonprofit called Hunters for Access. Yeah. Um, you know, you know about what what we do. No, please tell me. Oh, um, if you don't, if you got time, you don't mind. I just feel bad for the people listening, but okay, I'll go through because I I, no, no, because that'd be good to get your thoughts. I mean, maybe the best thing that would come out of it is you'd agree to start a chapter up by you. Um, so we have a chapter in Eastern Montana. There's a and there's a chapter in Kansas, and I feel like there's going to be more chapters. David's kind of working on a chapter, right? In yeah, Colorado. we're working on Colorado. Yeah. Eastern Colorado. We do two things. We raise money uh, from any way we can. Um, last year, we raised eight thousand dollars just in Miles City from local businesses and buy appreciation gifts and give them to ranchers and farmers that enrolled in the block management program. Nice. Calf, calf shelters, um, gift certificates to home and ranch supply stores, etc. And then also we organize work projects so we we uh we're gonna do it looks like at least seven work projects around mile city this summer we have a website and you can go there hunters for access it's right now it's called montanahunteraccess.org but pretty soon if you type in 
hunteraccess.org. It'll redirect. And you can pick your state. You can give a donation. You can say, put me on the roster to be called for a work project. And we, you know, we, we gave all the stuff we got that we bought away at our block management appreciation dinners here. There's two of them in every, in each hunting district and all seven of our hunting districts. And that's where we got signups from ranchers that were interested in, in the help. We got 35 ranchers or something like that to sign up. Wow. So, yeah, we have seven team leaders, um, local folks in the community. They're uh, well-respected game biologist from BLM, uh, game warden, myself. I don't know if I'm well-respected. Um, guy that cleans up all the fishing and fishing access sites around region seven manages all them. He's one of the team leaders. Uh, there's some others, but yeah, that's our stab at trying well, to, that sounds to me like a very pragmatic approach to, to a intractable, uh, intractable problem. Yeah. It, the the hope like is it. that the hope is that, that gratitude is powerful. You know, that's the hope the grad and it seems to be when we call these ranchers to try to orchestrate these work days they are very impressed like what a nice gesture you know yeah so yeah and it ties and, into what you were talking about too how about this disconnect between the you know north american model of conservation and private land rights if you know i mean if there's if five percent of the 340 million people in this country hunt that's like 17 million ish if we all were to provide one hour of free labor to a local farmer at ten dollars an hour, but unpaid, that's a hundred and seventy million dollars wow. in value we can provide to the hunting industry, to the farming industry as yep. hunters, with just one hour, one hour per year per hunter in volunteer time. If that's not what it takes to make it so that not only we maybe help some of those smaller farmers with these projects and whatnot, but also maybe integrate some habitat work, you know, right. removing non-native grasses or like, I, I mean, I just saw a video the other day of Pheasants Forever in this chapter. And I think it was Minnesota that they have guys going out on foot and tagging non-native grasses and digging them out. Yep. Like with the kind of manpower we have in this industry, we have the ability to really have that kind of impact. And that's what we're, that it's part like a big part of what we're doing is not only that you shouldn't be selfish and you should you shouldn't just go pay for that access and lock out other hunters who also own that wildlife that you want to get to you should give up your time and and benefit the people who could provide those access so they see the value of hunting because you know yeah. i mean a, a, a decent portion of the american population views hunting relatively favorably but i saw an art article recently um I forget where it was from, but how it was a it was a survey of people who how the, what they think about hunting for meat, and you know something like eighty percent or whatever were in favor. That's fine, but then when they say, "What do you think about hunting?" and then posting a picture of your kill on social media, and the approval drops dramatically. And wow, I'd like to see that. I did not. I've seen some. It wasn't NSSF. It wasn't. Um, no, no. Okay. It was, wow. It was. Um, it was uh, a guy that I talked to through the Hunt Quietly Instagram interviewed someone from um, a humane society, I think. Um, and it was, it was a copy of his, their interview. Um, and, but they, uh, and they 
immediately in a lot of cases label that as trophy hunting um so it's kind of like ties all the stuff together right like we're like we just don't think that posting this stuff and and making it all about yourself and your success really does anything for this the greater good of hunting and we have all these opportunities like you know i mean how many people fly out to hunt to montana don't even bring the meat back and then aren't coming back to volunteer or do anything for habitat you know it's it's that disconnect where we're we're buying success but we're not giving back to what fuels it at the end of the day whether that be through habitat or conservation or access yeah and i I mean I, i can't argue with you there um another thing is along those lines is if you go if you look on uh i have some quotes in this about this in my talk i gave at pope and young banquet but you look on humane society PETA, etc their their um platforms you'll see all kinds of stuff about how disgusting they think it is people gloating over dead animals on social media right so it just seems to be like all bad no good yeah, I hear you. I, I guess I'm kind of a bad guest on here for y'all because um, I don't really look at any of that stuff, and I don't watch the TV shows. Yeah, I I don't I don't yeah. either. I pulled my nose and look at enough of it to comment on it because I'm concerned. So you know about what it is. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I've spent my whole life hunting and raised two children who hunt. We've fed ourselves. Um for 20 years this way, you know, and catching fish out of the Missouri and uh, just like we fed ourselves this way without ever watching. I I don't think, I mean, I watch your brother's shows, but they have a basis in conservation. Mm-hmm. And, and his, his, uh, the thing he says going in about a deeper understanding or, you know, integration with the natural world or whatever, you know, I mean, I watched some of his, a lot of quite a few of his shows and then Randy Newberg shows I'm, I'm aware of and have watched, but mostly I'm totally disconnected from this world. I, I don't yeah, really yeah. watch a fishing show. Yeah. I just go fishing. Yeah. Same, same. Um, but that's, the, and I think the, I know that's what we're saying people should do. And instead of like, buying a fishing show or buying this and that or watching it you should go do something right write your congressman go volunteer like put that money towards like a nonprofit that's like passing on a high percentage of their funds into direct conservation and, and legislative and habitat work like you know do the things that don't just satisfy you right now but that satisfy our ability to pass on this privilege to the next generation. Right. Like you were saying earlier, what was that phrase you used? Deferred. Deferred gratification. Deferred gratification. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a Freudian, a Freudian term. Um, yeah. But you know what? Deferred gratification also is a, is a measure, I think in Freudian psychology of, of mature, you know, maturity. Yeah. Yeah, one certainly. of the things we're definitely, I mean, you know, I mean, we could all tell like terrible story, horror, horror stories, but I just, I'm disconnected from a lot of that. I just, uh, if I can kill an elk every, not every year, I don't, I mean, I'm 30% or less on elk, but I hunt a lot. Um, but 
I'm disconnected from the things that y'all most worry about or object to. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's not saying that y'all are wrong. I just don't I don't share that interest in that. I don't I'm, I'm disconnected from it. Yeah, it's weird. Like this, me too, being disconnected from it. That I'm so concerned about it. I don't know how that came to be, but I mean, I guess. The one, the one thing I'm, I'm intimately familiar with is what's happened to my hunting. Yes. It's not gotten better. Never has. Yes. You know? And so you, you start looking around for causes and it's like the, the easiest thing to change in my mind is, is to get hunters to stop feeding the advertising beast. Right. Do you so, think that would alter the commodification of, of the experience as represented by big leases? By big leases and people hunting for crowding you out by hunting for shitty reasons. Like yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's bad. Like we just had did a podcast last night about this article in um, outside magazine where Sitka approached this snowboarder guy that had started hunting a little bit and bought him a $21,000 hunt. And then they write an article about it. And then he grip and grins about his bull all over his platform, picks up 3,500 additional followers instantly. And nowhere in the article. So now you got a bunch of like, wilderness athletes folks thinking that this hunting's really pretty keen right. because they don't realize that that hunt like they say where they were the desiree ranch these people aren't going to know that that's someplace you got to go and pay right grand. It's, it's, so like yeah. it's it's fucking horrible man like it's just yeah. like a bold-faced lie well it is i'm not like I'm not sure how you deal with that though. Like, like if just you had calling to leave, it out is what we're trying to do. You know, what's that? just calling it out is what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. It needs I mean, to be a groundswell. Like you said, people have to just wake up and realize that like, that's not what hunting is about. Like right. what percentage of hunters can afford $21,000? Nobody I know. Much less. I couldn't spend that much on hunting over five years. Right. Yeah, and then I, I've said it a zillion times already, but I just wouldn't even have any interest. It's not why I do this. Right. Um, yeah, it, no, it, that has nothing to do with why I do it either. I, I've never, um, I'm trying to think if I've ever paid. I've never have because I never had any money. <laughs> <laughs> I found out I was on a, I found out I was on a pay hunt when I was on, when I was hunting one time. Mm-hmm. I thought we were there. We were filming Meat Eater, and I thought we were there because um, my brother called him up and got permission. And I found out that I was pay hunting. I did. I was not happy about that at all. Mm-hmm. I may have shot some sharp tails that somebody had the place lease, but I, I was never told about it. It was the same kind of deal. They're like, yeah, y'all can go up the coulee there. And it's possible that was leased. I don't know. It sure was good hunting. <laughs> it, was, it was leased then. It was, was leased then. That's how I know I'm trespassing is when yeah. I start seeing some critters. It's like. 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think we're going to be running neck and neck with the commodification, whether people do the post the pictures on Instagram or write about it and outside or not. I do think that. Um, I think that because that experience where I come from in Alabama, mostly it's lease, you know, it's white tails are mostly lease hunting. Yeah, but it's it's I'd say it's become more and more leased out here, and yeah, I'd say that yeah. that is a product of media. It, media has something to do with it for sure. Well, like I say, the hunting industry is completely convinced it works because they're right. devoting shows of media to, to, to sell property. You know? right. Yeah, right. And I I have more anecdotes than that. I know people that have watched. Uh, my brother on Joe Rogan experience or listened to him and gotten told me that they've gotten a hunting lease just directly as a consequence of that, right. that, that, that have come to Montana and hunted out on private land leases as a consequence of watching the media or TV show. And so it's just him. It's, you know, but I, I, man, I, I all really the, think, all the shows really, and everything. I really think that me and you are talking about the same thing though in conservation is I can't make people care. Uh-huh. You know, um, all I could do is to, and with conservation, it's a little easier because I could just point out that your kids can go swimming in the creek and it's going to be a good time had by all, right? Mm-hmm. And they're going to grow up strong and healthy and stuff rather than being poisoned. Like, so it's it's kind of an easier argument. But we're both talking about a, a change in human attitude of people who are basically good folks that are interested in some of the same things we're interested in. Yeah. From it's just that what I'm, when I'm proposing costs, no money, right. it would, it, and it costs no time. It would save you time and money to do what David and I recommend. Right. <laughs> yeah. And things can yeah. things that are very intriguing to people can become passe. There's just not many people that wear parachute pants and break dance anymore. Right. You know, and, <laughs> and, and I, I just More I, have, I just have I just hope by rolling my eyes at hunting influencers and hunting TV enough, like you know, rolling my eyes with my mouth about it, that I expedite the process of it becoming passe right i don't think i don't know i'm not optimistic but that's that that was what motivated me to do it i was like it would require so little on people's part to check out from this nonsense right do you worry that um a growing like if it became passe that a growing group a number of people would be uninterested in it and so they wouldn't be pushing the conservation or buying the guns that pay the Pittman Robertson taxes or buying the duck stamp that funds the uh, federal du- uh, wildlife refuges? Um, I, I don't know how that would. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. If, I, I'm not concerned. It's not something that comes to my mind. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I'm very concerned about what, what the number of hunters high number of hunters per acre we have on publicly accessible ground right now is doing to wildlife so there's like there's a there's negative habitat consequences from having too many hunters and nobody ever says that right and i think there's like a 
net even like because what i'm hearing you saying is you know fewer like if people buy fewer hunting licenses like what about the negative impacts of that but i'm mostly thinking about federal duck stamps yeah and or federal duck stamps um but i think when you pair that with the other things we're talking about where you know if the nonprofits would stop spending so much money on r3 you know a company like like a nonprofit like delta waterfowl i think spends close to 20 percent of their annual budget on it's labeled like r3 and education but that's a good chunk you know if that money just went into conservation work and whatnot how many duck like Duck stamp is what twenty five dollars. How many yeah, duck you, stamps can we afford yeah. to lose if you put all that money? And so th- I think th- there's you know we're just trading money around here by bringing in new hunters. You're spending money to bring in new hunters. You're getting more duck stamps. But if you just put that money straight into the resource instead of playing this like you know merry go round game of of getting hunters, getting them to buy licenses, they buy gear, and then you bring more hunters and, and all of that. You know I think you you cut out a lot of the crap and you put, you just put the resource first and you put the money straight to the resource, which is what I think if you were to ask most hunters who, um, who give money to the groups like that, you know, if you were to put, pose that equation to them and have hard numbers for them, I think they would say, yeah, no, I would rather they just put the money straight into it. It's interesting. I haven't seen that any evidence that anybody's going to do that. I'm not sure what the mechanism, I mean, you'd have to create the mechanism for the public or a nonprofit to an NGO to fund the federal wildlife refuge. Yeah. I so mean, it exists. That would like be in a, Colorado. You'd have to rebuild some wheel. You'd have to do some wheel reinvent oh, there. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. As in terms of financial mechanisms, definitely. Um, but I, I, mean, I don't think it would be that hard if a, if a bunch of, I mean, it's like hunters standing up and saying that we want you to tax our guns and ammo to fund wildlife. If, if, the nonprofit industry stood up and said, we want you to create a fund or we can like, like, you know, put money into these different, yeah. like the, what's the federal government going to say? Like, no, we don't want your money. Like, come yeah. on. They're going to, yeah. right. they'll pass that bill tomorrow. And, well, I mean, I mean the, the project that I do in Southern Idaho at the Mule Deer Foundation is exactly that where uh Mule Deer Foundation places money on the ground for us to plant sage and bitter brush in the winter range for those mule deer that's been burned over. Mm-hmm. So that that wheel has been invented, yeah. Um, and I could definitely see that that could be a, a incredible positive. I mean, the Oak Foundation yep. does that too. Pheasants Forever does it to the max. Um, yeah. But I would I would uh, I think there's a question as to whether there's a growing indifference to the resource. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I'm I'm listening to y'all on R three because it's it's a growing pool of of consumers pursuing a shrinking resource. So one of the things that I would suggest there was that we have utterly failed in in the up and bird world in Montana to do the most basic things to bolster the resource. And that has to do with federal farm policy, creating perverse incentives for landowners to take out bird cover and dry and not not fill in dry corners with habitat and all that. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the things I just I, I that's that's one of my pet peeves or soapboxes that I just cannot understand. We we watched CRP go away to the tune of some millions of acres in my lifetime, and we have we have promoted 
beautiful bird dogs chasing beautiful native birds while not I mean it it has gone down so much in my 33 years of hunting birds I I mean I just can't I I mean my dog is 11 years old and I my everybody asked me if I was going to get another one I don't know Yeah that's and sad if you build that habitat, those birds are there. When we had upland game bird enhancement projects that were that were active, and they weren't the only thing in you know for twenty five miles. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, it's so interesting because I was talking. I was talking to a, a guy I know who works in biology for um, Pheasants Forever, and he was telling me about how important like the habitat work they're pushing is with cover crops edge habitat native grasses like and helping farmers understand what portions of maybe their uh agriculture operation they're doing that carefully targeted agriculture you know farm the best and conserve the rest pheasants forever is kind of on the cutting edge of this thing yeah and he's and he's the tip of the spear right he's like he was in the field he's like like working with these landowners all this stuff and I asked them, I said, like, well, you know, so I would say, uh, you know, your job is like one of the most important things in pushing this forward. And but where is that money coming from? And their biologists are all funded by the federal government. It's it, like 90 percent, you know, Pheasants Forever is not really footing that bill. So if in they're not putting that, if, that's, right. if, if it's a partnership and they're dealing with some of the overhead and some of the management and whatnot. But like the end of the day, you know that's coming from these 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 grants um, and federal funding so if that's the most important thing that can that pheasants forever can be doing for pheasant pheasant habitat then why isn't more of their donation money going to that too and maybe some portion of it is yeah. maybe but why don't we have like more biologists if you have 50 or however many one per state two per state funded by the federal government why aren't you matching that and doubling it you know like right. where where's the how are we? How are they looking at this like prior prioritization in the financial equation in terms of know. generating I, the I, ROI yeah, for, yeah, I, for I, their I members? But how would a, how would a cessation of R three then support that? Because now you got less people. Um, what would you call it? Less stakeholders. Yeah. To push that, um, I, I would I would say a cautionary tale for me. I did a lot of reporting on the water situation in Iowa, where the corn ethanol and the runoff from the nitrates has made the Des Moines water system incapable of meeting its nitrate standards. Right? They just can't do it. And the Clean Water Act does not apply to non-point solution, which pollution, which is runoff from agriculture at this point. Now there's solutions to that, which is buffering creeks with pheasant habitat, which Minnesota had as a law, 30 feet to your creeks. Um, and they've never, they haven't been able to enforce that. They haven't had the po- political will. So in Iowa, um, and I may, I, I, hard to say, that I don't want to be quoted on this completely, but they have simply had a very large diminishment in people buying fishing licenses. So they just are kind of given up. Mm-hmm. And that is that is a loss of stakeholder power, which has then taken away the air from the balloon of positive change of creating agricultural practices, which would not hurt the farmers, which would incre- would, would 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 solve the water problem. Yeah, 
I think it's a double-edged sword. I think if nonprofits were spending more money directly into the resource and really showing hunters that they're generating opportunity and, and birds for them, that more hunters would sign up. I think a lot of, from what I, people have told me, like I manage the Instagram, so I kind of get some of the frontline comments from people and not, you yeah. know, people look at some of the salaries that people make of these nonprofits and they look at where the money goes and they, uh, they, you know, on their own think, oh, I don't know if this is worth it. I remember thinking the same thing when I was getting into hunting, you know, I, um, I, I'm working in corporate finance. I just kind of like lean towards these things, but I went and looked up, you know, DU and a Delta waterfowls overall budget and how much money was actually making it to the resource. And you can go, to some not not uh, I forgot what the website's called, but they're Charity Navigator. Not, yeah, great. Charity Navigator is awesome. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, and I don't think people are necessarily always happy with those grades. So I think if they were to focus more on those elements and really have uh, build it and they will come philosophy, I think more people would give money. But I think that's also part of what we're advocating too is that we don't just need more hunters; we need better hunters. We don't need more people who we just bring into the sport and they maybe, you know, sign up for one year and then quit and then just go do their own thing where they only want to go, they, they take a week off and go hunt, do an outfitted hunt in whatever state each year. And that's it. And then they like, you know, besides telling their friends about it and watching some shows, they don't really think about hunting at this more, you know, philosophical and, and long-term level that we're talking about here. Right. I just don't think that the mo the current state of affairs fosters that. And I think this build it and they will come mentality and getting hunters to buy into that is a better long-term solution for funding conservation at that, at the nonprofit level than our current model is. I think we're mm -hmm. just spinning our wheels right now. A couple comments. One is that funding is better than ever, way better. Um, so they have that. And then another, one other funded from where? From Pittman Robertson and license sales is yep. after correcting for inflation is higher, way higher than historic levels. So there's that. The other thing is that uh, I don't think R three is very effective at all. Uh, I mean, it provides a means for people that want to learn how to hunt to hunt um well we should really be calling it r2 because it's not r3 it's r2 it's not retention it's anti-retention you can't be pro good point you cannot be pro recruitment and reactivation and be pro re retention they're internally inconsistent but so let's say r2 <laughs> um it, it, i think what the biggest the 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 biggest thing bringing more people in is media not the nonprofits? The nonprofits are probably a second step where you get and you go and you you do a some kind of workshop to learn how to pluck a duck or whatever because you got into it from watching Duck Dynasty or whatever. Um, but the another reason to be concerned about media is because they're going back to David's point. We need better hunters. What's being modeled to people, new hunters, is disgusting. It's it's absolutely repulsive. 
the kill top, a turkey in every state. Yeah. For example, yeah. They the top people, the people that have the most eyeballs, more than anybody at BHA or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or anybody else that's a spokesman, by way are people that kill 20 to 30 big game animals a year. Those are the role models. And that's a huge problem. You know, I, that, that's part of my anger with the hunting nonprofits is they don't teach anything about that, about being a game hog. And then and they try to make there be more hunters. Like it, it just seems like this willful, it's the inability to take tough stances on anything that drives me batty. Well, that definitely is a problem that we have now. I mean, yeah, because they all get money from the hunting industry. It's all tied together and they don't want to say anything that ticks anybody off. Well, how many people like how many people that won't say they watch a show about, uh, let's say somebody kills a giant mule deer. And and that's on a TV show and they don't know that it's on a private ranch, not necessarily game farm. I mean, a private wild hunt. You don't get any metadata at all. You get no, no data about the data. <laughs> yeah. Why is it bad for me, say, to be 25 years old and working on that ranch in the Bitterroot and see a picture of a giant mule deer and say, you know, if I hike far enough into the Bitterroots, I might could ke- kill something like that, and I'd like to. This this is happening. I'm, I'm telling you a story from my own experience, you know, and, and then I spend several years without ever killing one, though I saw a few. Right. And killed maybe a couple of small ones, which I wouldn't do now. Right. Because there are not enough of them. But I don't know that that's a bad thing. Well, like I say, I mean, to say it again, be to repeat myself. Right. Like that, it, like it leads to the commodification of wildlife, the locking up, yeah. hunting lands and other things. Yes. And, and, all, and so that's, I guess that's one answer. And another, another way of promoting it is that to say it is that it turns hunting into a popularity contest and then, and thereby makes people start throwing dollars at it to try to get, uh, be more successful and the more money and where do they put the money to put the money towards their own exclusive access? Cause that's the hardest thing right. to get. Right. That's so true. that's, that's where the, uh, the problem lies with using yeah. hunting to draw attention to yourself, I think is a horrible idea. And there's a lot of tribes that thought that too. The Jutsukansi in Africa, hunter gatherer tribe had yeah. strong social mores against using hunting to, to make positive statements about yourself. Um, you Eskimo was native American tribes. I mean, so the, 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 what, what, what we're concerned with is, 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 a is an ancient tendency in human beings in my mind. Yeah. I just find it to be an individual. Like for me, it's just an individual choice. Um, I mean, I, I go with Richard Nelson, you know, he talks about hunting with the Koyukon up the, I think it's Gwich'in folks up there. And he just said, you know, none of them ever brag about their success of a, as a hunter because the the world had to conspire to give them that mm. animal. And he said that they could just as easily say when they get a lot of Christmas gifts from people that like them, you know, they go, man, I'm super good at Christmas. 
you know, and it's like, and I, I love, I've just been reintroduced to Richard Nelson um, after years away. And it's good stuff. <laughs> and what, what's it? What does he do? Uh, Make prayers for the Raven is one. He, oh, he lived I've in Alaska that, for a okay. long time. He died about ten years ago. Okay. Um, yeah. He kind of also stepped away. He was I'm a writer that for down. a long time, and he stepped away from writing. And I actually used to have an editor who was trying to get him to work for him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Man, I ain't got enough time left to sit and sit at a desk." Okay. Give you what you want. Yeah. Yeah. And in the vein of what you're talking about, like what's wrong with like me seeing a picture and then saying, if I hike back in the Bitterroot, you know, and tying it to what you were just talking about, but the world conspiring to bring that animal to you. I think part of the problem is that people see that and then they view it through a very like myopic lens of like their own, through their own achievement and not saying like, I want to go do this thing and like then thank the, decades of conservation work that's gone into making that possible for me and then give back to to make sure that somebody else can go do it people think of it as a singular achievement for themselves because that's what instagram like you know i mean that's what instagram propagates it's a post that gets a bunch of likes and a bunch of attention and brings you some sort of temporary self-actualization because of what you've gotten out of that and that's what's driving you to do that thing. And God it's not damn it, David! You're getting good. better at mar- mar- articulating the message than the architect <laughs> is. Fuck! It's not even the same message. It's a better one. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, I, I get it too. That's very well articulated. Um, my my own the my shared concern with you is not. I, I think Matt. I think you hit something on that with me. That comfort level stuff, you know. Like I, I'm not a secular humanist. I see human beings as as part of an entire fabric. This is a, yeah. a population eruption thing. Uh, I, I, of the Bible, I'm really most interested in Ecclesiastes, you know, the, which we won't go into. Uh, but it's more of a existentialist philosophy. So I don't really care if that person's on Instagram self actualizing to their own detriment. That's <laughs> to our detriment. Well, to, to, however, the larger effect of that in in loss of, uh, say the destruction of block management, because somebody's willing to offer a hundred dollars to every one dollar that the state can bring to to keep that ranch in in public access, that is a problem. And I'm I'm a hundred percent. I share your concerns there. Yeah. Um. The other thing I just feel is is an individual. I I can't fix people. You know. Oh, see, I think of this as like I've said this a zillion said this a zillion times, but my the bet I'm making, and I think that David's making, and, and one way it characterizes is that there's enough people out there that can, are concerned about hunting, not hunting culture, not hunting entertainment, but actual hunting, mm-hmm. that they can start to we can start to band together and. Do less. Do less consumption. There you go. Which seems way easier to me than solving environmental problems, which is something we got to work on too. Well, do less and give more. Yeah, do less. Do less. 
Which is an incredible, like, uh, mantra for life, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. for a better, a true, actual self-actualization, yeah. if you followed that. Um, one of the things, uh, y'all, I was, I, I was, I wasn't totally off base, but I was reading and listening to some of your stuff. And, um, the, my problem with your wind farm out there is that people were told to be very frightened of climate change and that immediately segued into a, a giant profit making machine, which then bypass like concerns over the freaking birds and water that mm. is, it was replaced by that wind farm. And I should have seen that coming, you know, I mean, I, I think of these solar farms I, I went to visit in Mississippi recently that are really some of the more egregious use of land, it, there's a lot of problems with it. It's in a county where they don't have a lot of voters. Um, they knew nobody would complain. Uh, and uh, I looked at that and I thought, we're worrying about this storm on the horizon, which is climate change, which I don't deny. And we're like stepping on a rattlesnake here. Yeah. By covering up this farmland and cutting down this forest, which – I don't know how much carbon it would have sequestered if they'd have left it alone. <laughs> oh, I, sh I share, I share your concerns. I share, yeah, I, I'm I mean, not, I'm very skeptical of, I, I don't, I, I haven't studied the issue nearly close enough to even have an opinion. seems like the right idea to me. But it's one of the things that coming right out of this conversation we're having is people don't want to change their consumptive habits, consumption habits. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a cascade of probably negative consequences from that. You don't want to question the original problem. Yep. Which, which to me is, is more consumers looking for a declining resource. Yeah. And you could apply that to energy as well. It's all uh, one. Uh, except there's not an there's except there's not an, not organizations that purport to be looking out for us that are trying to crowd us out, and companies that purport to be like helping True. us. Yeah, that, that are that, that are advertising with snowboarders and 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 and, and showing the snowboarders. Fans' success that costs twenty one thousand dollars, but not st like ha having that be part of the narrative. I mean, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I, what the what makes this whole thing interesting to me is that everybody with a, a voice in hunting. I don't think they got this way, got to this part place because they're bad people, but it's just. By hook and by crook, and just because of market forces, they got we got to a point where people, the nonprofits, and the hunting industry, are bad for my hunting, or bad for hunting uh, the hunting of people like me. Yeah, and I think you guys. Um, Probably, I mean, I mean, the more people, the less I got. Like, like um, freedom. Unlike so many other things we do, uh, is is a pie, and the more people that have to share it, the less we have. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, 
Um, I mean, that's not true uh, about, say, uh, a lot of things like civil rights. I can't, if, if you have the same rights as I do, I don't have any less rights. But mm-hmm. with freedom, the well, freedom I couldn't, like, I, I mean, it, I can't kick you out of the restaurant and take your seat. Right. By law. Right. <laughs> so civil rights, civil rights come at some expense. I guess. Right. It does. Right. But, but it's kind respect. of an expense that we can agree that like like a normal person would say, you know, we both have the right to sit in the restaurant. Yeah. No, I, I get your points well taken. Yeah. But but if yeah. we're all looking for a, a, tra- a parking spot at the trailhead. You know, chasing the, the last big bull that hasn't gone down to private land, then that is a, that is a, a pie. <laughs> oh yeah. When I show up at a, when I show on a trail, when I show up at a trailhead with 30 trucks and I've showed up a trail, many a trailhead with 30 trucks, even in bow season. Um, I think to myself, the nonprofits and the hunting industry would be delighted if it was 40. And fuck them, you know. <laughs> well, and, it seems to me that what y'all are doing, time. what you're doing with the rancher appreciation deal, is a direct way to solve that because those ten of those trucks could go to local ranches that are now open for hunting. Yeah, yep. there's people that are interested in coming out here and working on these work projects this summer from other states that have never hunted in Montana, never planned to. I mean, it's all connected. Right. That that I feel in my bones that if there was more opportunity in your home state, it would improve the hunting everywhere. Yep. Plus, it would be an incentive for some of those paper companies to buffer those creeks with like hardwoods and acorns where the turkeys could be and the whitetails could be instead of a loblolly pine plantation that's a monoculture biological desert for a million acres. Yeah. That's what yeah. I want to see. You yeah. Know? Um, and one of the things I was going to ask you, this is totally, I don't know any of the answer to this. Um, have you ever thought about like a Jägermeister type program? And I don't talk about shooting the liquor. I'm talking about a hunt master where you could go to a landowner and say, I took this class. I know the difference between a black bear and a grizzly bear. I don't leave gates open. You know, I don't throw toilet paper on your fence. Um, I'm a certified ex so-and-so. I mean, I'm a certified, you know, hunter who's not going to shoot the cows. And then that would give you an access, like there could be an access program for people who have proved not to be yahoos. There is something like that, the Montana Master Hunter Program, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. I I would be I would be all ab- about that if there were ranchers that were just so had, were, had been so badly burned that they're like I, I I was trying to make it I was advocating last year sat in on some meetings with officials and gave testimony trying to make it so that you had to take a training program to hunt any public private land made ex- accessible through bu- public. Mm-hmm. I mean, through, yeah, through public dollars, you know? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think of what we're doing with Hunters for Access in part, we're in part trying to counter commodification. 
in part Correct. trying to com, com, uh, battle the effects of media, and we're in part trying to battle to counter or counterbalance the effects of bad hunter behavior too. Yep. You know. Well, what I, what I th- and for me where 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 our interests ignite uh, unite and perhaps ignite um, is in battling the commodification of access. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to listen to anything about that. I'm not, I, like I said, I don't really share your concern with the media part. Yeah. Um, that's just not part of my life, but the, the commodification of access is something that I have watched coming at me like a flood tide uh, in 34 years since I started hunting the Bitterroot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reason I'm concerned about media is because I think of it as the root cause of the commodification. But, but I'm I'm all about working on the symptom and not the cause. I mean, Hunters for Access, that's what we're doing is working on the symptom with that, not the cause. So. Right. But the, the cause to me seems to me to be best addressed uh, by individual choice. Um. And to, to say, you know, I'm not interested in that because I read Richard Nelson or uh, um, Dave Peterson's book on elk, Elkhart, right? Um, or uh, whatever that, that great Dave Peterson book was, where it was it's basically definitely not commodification. It's definitely about you hunting on, on the landscape, living outside, and, and ex- facing the earth as an inhabitant. Yeah, I'm all about it being personal choice too. But yeah. I mean, a lot of times personal choice is informed by campaigns. Like the, the, there was a smoking cessation campaign, yeah. you know? So, like, smoking causes cancer. So, don't smoke doesn't seem much different to me than hunting social media and hunting TV cause privatization. Don't do hunting social media and hunting TV. It seems to have the same logical form to me. And it, and it might take just as long to manifest. Yeah, right. Right. You know, but it um, really has. I mean, I think something like 40% of adults smoked in the 80s. Yeah. Do you ever see anybody smoking anymore? Yeah. I love to smoke, but I also like to walk uphill and I can't do both. <laughs> you have a voice. Your voice, uh, like, is the voice of one who smoked a few cigs and drank a little <laughs> whiskey. <laughs> but yeah, that's I mean, a compliment, I, man. I, yeah, but I, I listened. I mean, I, that, I, I do think that that these things, and I, I think that the new conservation movement that I'm talking about is in its infancy. Um, and it it got a boost when that train derailed in East Palestine, mm-hmm. and those people got their private properties were, you know, rendered fairly valueless. Right. And then, but they were very anti-government. So they said, well, what, what happened here? There was no regulation, but these are people who voted for politicians who have promised to deregulate the very thing that derailed on them for years and years, you know? Yeah. That's and, very that's very interesting. Yeah, so it's very those, interesting. Those people, I, I, they're they're smart. I was I was reading all the comments, you know, on the on the news coverage of that, right? Okay. And the people, they get it. Like they're they're gonna get it over time. They're going to understand that at one time there was a Toxic Substances Control Act that America got together and passed in 1976, and it kept toxic substances from rendering people's properties valueless. <laughs> yeah, but it's like this pendulum 
where then we're like there's entire environmental degradation really is impacting people so that yeah. makes them be warmer to regulation but then after a time they're not so much concerned about that they're concerned about business right and so then they want to deregulate and it goes back and forth and it's not only that even the parties that are the more environmentally conscious party switch from Republican to Democrat. It's just this, this fluid thing, you know? But one of the things you're, you're battling there is the lowering of expectation. And that's, you're going to see that in hunting to the max. Yeah. Oh Um, yeah. If we lower expectations, you're going to lose it. And that goes for environmental protection, which is the basis of hunting and fishing, conservation, all of it. I mean, if you wanted to go into American exceptionalism, if if this country is exceptional in any way, it's because people made extremely difficult, inconvenient decisions over and over when they could have done the easy thing and it would have gone wrong. And people now are the beneficiaries of all that hard work. And they have had they're like oh, what am i gonna do man i i can't do nothing and you're like wow it's a good thing you know john mirror didn't say that yeah i've spent my whole life feeling bad about that until the last two years like but this is this is my giving back right on this this and hunters for access is my giving back and my god it's turned into a 15 to 20 hour a week enterprise for me it's like it's the now it's like I contemplate how nice it would be to give less, not feel guilty about not giving enough. You know, I don't know why I'm telling you that, but in my mind, and not man, I'm just good. not being a loud mouth. Like I feel like I could eke out the the next twenty years as an outdoorsman till I'm too old to do it because I got enough tips and tactics and secret little tricks to get to places and right and I have a cabin in Alaska that's going to take a long time to get overrun with people you know so I'm I, I'm doing this because I've done I've done, I, I I guess once I I've, I've learned that once you something is really good to you your whole life you end up in this position where you want to fight for it. Quid pro quo. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel about everybody. I've spent years on all this public land stuff and I'm like, well, I'm not sure how I'd have done it any different. I've, I've spent my whole life and raised two big old strong kids. And my wife and I have had a successful life basically using the public lands every day. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, and if we had vacation, it was like to go hiking in the in the bob or up through the bitterroots. If you wanted to go swimming, I mean, on and on, right? Right. All of our meat, you know, eighty percent of our meat comes off the public lands. It like all the skiing. It's just like I, I mean, what do you, what do you, to to whom much is given, much is expected. And I've been mm-hmm. giving it all, man. I've we've we have we have whooped it, we burned it up. Then you got guys like David, who's freaking. What you're 30 now? Yeah. Yeah. Who's been hunting for three years, right? Three or four years? Uh four or five, yeah. Four or five. And already right out of the box is given back. You know? Right. Well, I'd say this is the first season I've actually ever like taken my share of the resource the first four <laughs> years. 
I, I was shooting a couple of buffalo heads and I was stoked. <laughs> <That's about it. laughs> yeah. Do you oh. have a dog? Yeah, I've got two. Yeah. You know, duck, I mean, duck hunting with a dog is a, <clears throat> my kids are not big duck hunters because I was so obsessive and intense about it that I, I kind of turned them off. Like how so? I just was like, I'm like, you're coming in, get down. Okay. I was. I didn't do any of that with big game. It was like a good day because I know how intense big game hunting is to kill, like you know, your meat. And so I was very careful with duck hunting. For somehow, I just was like, I just was not the good mentor in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, you're you're standing there looking like a fool. They can see you for a mile away. Oh, <laughs> you reminded me. You're reminding my, me of my father right now, who was like miserable to hunt with most of the time Uh and fish with because he was just so angry the whole time yeah well i got it i got it i'm not saying you were that way i'm I'm just saying he was i hear you i i did it well with fishing i did it well with uh the bird hunting we walked too far for too little payoff for little Mm -hmm. kids yeah but um it was just waterfowling for some reason that i did it wrong yeah um and they don't care. And I still love it. I still <laughs> didn't hurt me at all. Uh, yeah. But I could not get my daughter to go duck hunting with me this year. They wants to be yelled at. David came up here for a weekend last year and we had just a blast. We didn't get very yes, many. Uh, I thought we were going to get, I thought we were going to clean up. We didn't get very many, but David shot a, a speckle belly goose. Nice. And yeah, first, until yeah. that thing dropped out of the sky and landed on the gravel bar, I didn't know that that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. oh. <laughs> I, at first I thought it was a swan. <laughs> <laughs> when it was way up in the sky, that was a swan. I was like, no, that's not Canada because it's a swan. And then, but, and like, I'm looking at this thing, it's like, what is this gray goose with the orange bill? Like, had no idea that that was a thing. It was so like, cool. Yeah. That thing was beautiful was too. Delicious too. It was so good. That's what I've always been told. And I was um we did a little visit with the Gwitchin up in um Fort Yukon. And that's what their favorite goose. Oh. That's they're just like they 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 do Canada's, they do all of them, but speckled bellies are there. They're and I have actually never eaten one. I've heard it they were great. Yeah, yeah they're they're really good. Yeah. Oh speaking a- of that, I need to go eat dinner, you guys. You guys yeah. want you guys want to keep podcasting without me? <laughs> no, I'm ready for dinner too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Th- thanks, Al. It was really fun talking to you. Yeah, and, Al, this and, is a great it. Yeah, good to meet y'all both. All right. Um, yeah, next time I'm in uh, Great Falls, or if you get out here, let's try to get together. You bet. Give me a holler, man. Drink some whi- Drink some whiskey and smoke a cig. I'm easy to find. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see you. Good night, you too. All right, see you, Hal. Good night.